Now today we want to begin a new series of messages on experiencing Christmas firsthand. And I invite you to take your Bibles, please, and turn with me to the Gospel of Luke. This is a very familiar story to us, but we must never allow familiarity to breed contempt. Uh, we can always learn something new as we study the Word of God. And so I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 2, and we're going to read verses 1 through 7. You follow along as I read. Let's stand in honor of the Word of God. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria, and everyone went to his own town to register. So Joseph went up from Galilee, from Nazareth in Galilee, to Judea, to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and the line of David. And he went there to be registered with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. And while they were there, the time came for the baby to be born. And she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloth and placed him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. Father in heaven, we have read these words so many times. We've heard this story so often. But Lord, I pray that it would come alive in our hearts in a new way today. That there would be a freshness, an anticipation, an expectation that you're going to do great things in our lives. Uh, we have come this morning to celebrate you. It's not about us, Lord. All of it's been about you. We're so thankful that you were born for us. And that you died for us and were resurrected for us so that we might experience life everlasting. It's a life of joy and freedom and fellowship. It's a life of walking in the Spirit and allowing the Holy Spirit to lead us and to mold us and shape us and make us into, into people that please you. And so, Lord, we come with open hearts, open minds to receive from you what you have for us today. Speak to us, I pray, in the matchless name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> Over the next four Sundays, we want to speak with you about experiencing Christmas firsthand. We want to go back into the tunnel of time and relive some of the key events of what took place more than 2,000 years ago when God himself clothed himself in human flesh and the baby that was born in the manger. That little baby was a baby who changed the world forever. And our world has never been the same since that first coming of Christ. And every time we celebrate the first coming of Christ, we also need to be anticipating his second coming as well. Because the next time when he comes, he will not come as a little baby wrapped in strips of cloth, but he will come back as King of kings and Lord of lords, and he'll receive us unto himself. And so as we relive some of these moments, 
And we want to do so with an eye to the future. Uh, he's preparing a place for us. And he wants us not only to celebrate the reality of his first advent, but to look ahead to his second advent as well. Now this morning, we'd like to focus our attention on that little city called Bethlehem. It's a very small, a very obscure city. Uh, not much is known about Bethlehem. Uh, it was not a world-class city by any means. It was small, it was obscure, it was, it was really not a place that attracted much attention. It's interesting that back in 1865, Philip Brooks, who was at that time the pastor of the Church of the Holy Trinity in Philadelphia, his parishioners sent him on a trip to Europe and to the Middle East. And on Christmas Eve, 1865, Brooks found himself in a vacant church close to the place where the Lord Jesus was born. And as he was in that vacant church and it was quiet and it was still, he looked up and he could see through the windows the, the beautiful stars of heaven. And as he reflected on everything that he was feeling, the stillness of that night, it was all interrupted with uh, choruses of praise as the angels were announcing the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ unto you is born this day in the city of David, a Savior who is Christ the Lord. It so touched Philip Brooks in that moment that when he came back to the United States, two years later, he wrote the words to that familiar hymn, that Christmas hymn, that carol that we love to sing. O little town of Bethlehem, how still we see thee lie. Above thy deep and dreamless sleep, the silent stars go by. Yet in thy dark street shineth the everlasting light. The hopes and dreams of all the years are met in thee tonight. Yes, Bethlehem is a place that will be forever remembered because it was there that God visited planet Earth. It was in Bethlehem that deity was clothed with humanity. It was in Bethlehem that the riches of heaven experienced the poverty of man. It's in Bethlehem that the Savior was born. The scripture says that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor that you through his poverty might become rich. It is in Bethlehem that the God-man, the most unique individual ever born, entered our world. He is God and he is man. His human nature does not diminish his divine nature, nor does his divine nature make him any less a man. 
He is the God-man, heaven's gift to you and to me. And as we study the scriptures, we discover that Bethlehem, though it is small and obscure, seems to be a, a very central point, a focal point in the biblical record. A survey of the relevant passages in the Bible about Bethlehem reveal that there are two Bethlehems. One, there is the Bethlehem of Zebulun, spoken of in Joshua chapter 19, verses 15 and 16, where Joshua names a number of the cities, Shimron, Adelia, and Bethlehem, 12 cities with their villages. This is the inheritance of the people of Zebulun. Bethlehem and Zebulun was located about seven miles northwest of Nazareth, believed by scholars to be the place and the residence of Ibzan, one of the judges who ruled in Israel, according to Judges 12 and verse 8. We don't know much about Bethlehem of Zebulun. The second Bethlehem is the Bethlehem of Judea, which is also called the city of David here in Luke 2 and verse 4. The city is located about five miles south of Jerusalem and is designated earlier in scripture as Ephrath or Ephrathah, Bethlehem Ephrathah. Rachel's tomb is located there and David's ancestors had grown up and lived in the city. And this becomes the birthplace of the Messiah. And the stories of the shepherds and the wise men all center around this little city called Bethlehem. And we want to look at this city uh, and gain a, a, a deeper understanding as to how it was divinely prepared in the eternal counsels of God to be the birthplace for the Savior of the world. First of all, I want us to look at the historical significance of Bethlehem. The historical significance of Bethlehem. There are a number of Old Testament texts that reveal some key events that take place in this little and obscure city. First of all, Bethlehem is a city of sorrow. Bethlehem is first mentioned in Genesis chapter 36, verses 16 to 20. In this text, we have uh, recorded some of the most sorrowful moments in the life of Jacob as he and Rachel journey toward Ephrath or Bethlehem. It's on this journey that Rachel gives birth to her last son and expresses the anguish of her soul by naming him Ben-Onai, that is, son of my sorrow. Jacob, you will remember, renames that little baby Benjamin, meaning son of the right hand or child of good fortune, because his birth rounded out the number of 12 sons that were born to Jacob and to Rachel. Nevertheless, you'll remember that Jacob grieves deeply over Rachel's death. He sets a pillar over her burial place that stands until this day. And you'll remember how deeply Jacob loved Rachel. You remember the story well Laban had tricked him. He loved Rachel, but he worked seven years and he was given her sister. 
And Jacob had to work another seven years, an extra seven years to make Rachel his wife. The first time it is mentioned in the Bible, Bethlehem is a place of sorrow. And no doubt that as Rachel suffers and dies in childbirth, there is great pain and anguish in Mary's heart as she journeys on that bumpy road to Bethlehem. And the fact that there was no room in the inn, can you imagine the unsanitary conditions of that place? How would you have liked to give birth in that kind of a situation where there's really no no uh, prevention of, of any kind of a disease or whatever could happen in those kind of conditions. But this would just be the beginning of sorrows for Mary because you'll remember at the foot of the cross her heart is pierced once again as she sees her son die for the sins of the whole world. And that little child who graces the cradle in Bethlehem would be known as a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. The very first time Bethlehem is mentioned in the scripture, it is known as a city of sorrow. Number two, Bethlehem is a city of selection. In 1 Samuel 16, you have recorded the words of the Lord to Samuel to go and anoint a new king over the house of Israel after King Saul had disobeyed the Lord. And in 1 Samuel 16 and verse 13 we read, Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed David in the midst of his brothers, and the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. You'll remember that when Samuel went there, Jacob presented all of his sons to him. None of those sons met the standard. And then David, the shepherd boy, this young lad, came. And Samuel anointed this, this young boy, David, who seemed to be the weaker of the brothers, to be the king over the house of Israel. Is it not interesting that Bethlehem, known as the city of David, is also selected in the eternal counsels of God as the place for another king? In the words of the wise men, where the king of the Jews would be born. Bethlehem is a kingly city. It is a place where kings were selected to carry out special responsibilities and purposes of God. Jesus was born as king in Bethlehem so that he might be born as king in our lives. And then thirdly, Bethlehem is a city of salvation. You see this in this beautiful little book of Ruth. Ruth 1 through chapter 4. This little book you have recorded one of the most beautiful accounts of God's redemptive love. Ruth, a Moabitess who lost her first husband, journeys to Bethlehem with her mother-in-law, Naomi. There she meets Boaz, her kinsman redeemer, who saved her from a life of barrenness. And together, Ruth and Boaz become the parents of Obed, the father of Jesse, the father of David, from whose line the Messiah came. 
Boaz as kinsman redeemer points toward Christ, the great redeemer of mankind, just as the angels announced to Joseph before Christ's birth in Matthew 1.21, Mary will bear a son, and you will call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Again to the shepherds, the angels say, for under you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. That word Savior means a deliverer, a rescuer. Jesus did not become a Savior. He did not become a rescuer. He was born a deliverer. He was born a rescuer to rescue us from ourselves and from that which keeps us from God. The words of the gospel writer, Jesus came to seek and to save those who are lost. And so as you think about Bethlehem in historical perspective, it is a city of sorrow. It is a city of selection. It is a city of salvation. Number two, the prophetical significance of Bethlehem. And for this, we need to turn over to the book of Micah. The Old Testament book of Micah, chapter 5 and verse 2. Here the prophet writes, But you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from of old, from ancient times. This prophecy of the birthplace of the Messiah is recorded some 700 years before the event itself. The whole Old Testament prepares the way for what is unfolded in the New Testament. That which is concealed in the old is revealed in the new. And Micah prophesies <clears throat> of the impending fall of Israel because of their sins. Yet he also holds out a ray of hope that in spite of their sins, in spite of their transgressions, there is coming a time when a deliverer would come and provide spiritual victory for his people. And Micah makes two significant observations in his prophecy. First of all, notice he speaks about the city of Bethlehem. He says, but you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you are small, put a circle around the word small. Who would have thought that in the sovereign counsels of God, he would have selected this small, little, obscure city to begin rolling out his plan of world redemption? From a human point of view, it would seem that if you're going to make some kind of a big announcement, you would want to choose a world-class city, a, a city that everyone would know about. But no, that's not the way God works. He chooses that which is small and insignificant and invests it with greatness. Bethlehem had nothing of merit going for it. There was no human reason as to why the baby Jesus would be born in such an obscure city. And yet that is how God works. 
He takes that which is small and obscure and seemingly insignificant and invests it with greatness. This is how God works. He takes us as flawed human beings, as people of insignificance. He redeems us, he transforms us, and he empowers us to become people that he desires us to be that is way beyond anything we could ever imagine or expect. God the Father chooses to exalt this city of low degree by specifying it as the city where the Savior of the world would be born. Bethlehem would no longer be obscure. It would be forever remembered because Christ magnifies it with his presence. Though it is little, Bethlehem would no longer be the least, according to Matthew 2 and verse 6. God likes to take individuals and circumstances that we don't think he even knows about and transform them into opportunities that he can use us in ways we never dreamed we'd ever be used by God. Just stop and think how God has protected you, gone before you. We are so small. The nations of the world, the Bible says, are like a drop in a bucket. And yet God looks after us. He delights to work his greatest purposes through that which is small and insignificant. Number two, the prophet not only speaks about the city of Bethlehem, he speaks about the coming Christ. And he describes some very descriptive titles of this coming deliverer. Notice in Micah 5, 2, first of all, he is spoken as the ruler over Israel. This Messiah who is going to come, he is going to set things straight. He is destined to rule and reign without a rival. He will supersede all the rulers that have ever ruled in Israel. He is the ruler of Israel, and he will set things in order. Number two, notice he is referred to as the eternal one. He is the one whose origins, verse two, are from of old, from ancient times. That is the Messiah who is about to be born. He has always existed from eternity past to eternity future. He has always been. He always will be. He is the first. He is the last. He is the alpha. He is the omega. He is the eternal one. And his rule extends back into eternity past and will extend in eternity present as well as in eternity future. Number three, he is referred to as the shepherd. Notice in verse four, he will stand and shepherd his flock. It speaks of the fact that this one who is coming is going to care for his people. He's going to look after his people. He's going to care for his people. Jesus picks up this metaphor in the New Testament and he says, I am the good shepherd. 
The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. This is who the babe in the manger is. He is ruler. He is eternal. He is our shepherd. Fourthly, he is the one who is endowed with the strength of the Lord. Notice verse 4. He will stand in the strength of the Lord. He will not succumb to human weaknesses. You go and look at all the kings that ever ruled in Israel. All of them had weaknesses. And many of them succumbed to those weaknesses. And Israel and Judah fell into great sin because of the weaknesses of the kings. But this one who is coming, he will be endowed with strength of the Lord. He, notice he will rule in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. He has authority to rule and he rules with strength, not weakness. Number five. His greatness will be known to the ends of the earth. Notice the last part of verse 4. For then his greatness will reach to the ends of the earth. There's not a place on planet earth where it is not acknowledged that there was this man, Jesus, who lived and died and who was resurrected. They know about Jesus. Some of them have never ever heard his name, but in their hearts they know that there is someone who alone can save them from their sins. He shall be great to the ends of the earth. And number six, notice, this Christ will usher in a era of peace. Notice, and he will be their peace. Verse 5. Our world today is longing for peace. The Bible says that when we receive Jesus Christ into our lives, that he becomes our peace. He has broken down that wall that separated us from a holy God. And we can be at peace this morning because the Prince of Peace was born in Bethlehem not only to bring peace to our troubled world, but to bring peace to our individual lives. If you have no peace this morning, it's not because... The Prince of Peace is withholding anything from you. You have to surrender your will to him. And then his peace, his peace that passes all understanding, the Bible says, will flood over us and he will keep our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus. There is no need for any of us ever to live a moment or we're not at peace with God. The only thing that keeps us at peace with God is our own stubborn will. We need to surrender to that. We need to surrender our will to God. And when we do, his peace floods our hearts. 
I'm so thankful that our God, our deliverer, is the Messiah of peace. Bethlehem is the birthplace prophetically prepared for Christ. And what a beautiful picture it is of this baby who changes everything. He's ruler. He's king. He's provider. He's the shepherd. He's the eternal one. He is full of might and strength. Everything that we ever will ever need is found in the person of that little baby who grew up to be a man and laid down his life for us and then was supernaturally resurrected so that we could have life and have it more abundantly. 700 years before the event, this was the prophet's testimony. And then lastly, I want you to look at the symbolical significance of Bethlehem. That word Bethlehem is a very interesting word in the Hebrew. It simply means the house of bread. And how, poor, how significant it is that the baby in Bethlehem became known as the bread of life. He was born in the house of bread. John 6.35 puts it beautifully. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall never know, never hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. You see, bread is a universal food. And how fitting that Christ should liken himself to bread. He is all that we will ever need to be satisfied. There are millions today that are without bread. They're longing for just a piece of bread. Jesus is the bread of life. And when we partake of him, our lives are changed. We are transformed from the inside out because of all that he has done for us. We need to partake of the bread. I mean, you can see a, a wonderful loaf of bread that's just come out of the oven and it's steaming and, it, and it's, uh, you, you can smell it. it if, uh, you, you just are taken up by that bread, but does you no good until you what? You take a bite. <laughs> then you're satisfied. And that's what it is with Jesus. You have to trust him. He's paid it all for us. We don't have to do one single thing except accept what he's already provided. He is the one who completely satisfies. He strengthens us. He satisfies us. He's the bread that's come out of heaven, born in the house of bread, to extend an invitation to partake of that which can change our lives forever. And then the word Ephrathah. The Hebrew, it literally means a fruitful region. 
And again, how significant that Jesus Christ, the one that brings spiritual fruitfulness and freshness into our lives, is born in a city that is known for its fruit-bearing productivity. In fact, Jesus says in John 15 and verse 5, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. You see, we as God's people can only be fruitful as long as we are plugged into the vine. He doesn't want us to bear fruit. He wants us to bear much fruit. He wants us to bear much more fruit. The more we are plugged into Him, the more that spiritual fruitfulness is shed abroad in our hearts and people know that we have been with Jesus. This, this, this is a wonderful reality. When we abide in Jesus and his love consumes us and his character becomes our character, we live in a way that we never thought was possible. We don't have to be at war with ourselves. We don't have to be at war with our neighbors and friends. We can be at peace with God because Jesus is our peace. He is our bread. He is our life. And as we are plugged into him, we can accomplish so much more than we ever dreamed. Christ is born in Bethlehem. A place prepared historically, prophetically, and symbolically for the Savior of mankind. He is born to meet those that are spiritually hungry. Are you hungry for Jesus this morning? Is there something in your heart that says, Lord, I want, I want more of more of you? What Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount is that when we hunger and thirst after righteousness, we will be what? Filled. He wants to fill us with himself. And my friend this morning, Jesus was born in history so that he could be reborn in your heart. If you've never ever invited Jesus into your heart, I can't think of a better opportunity than right now to just bow your head and say, Lord Jesus, I need you. I'm not satisfied with the way things are going in my life. I want to partake of you. I want you to satisfy the deepest longings of my heart. It's just a matter of surrendering your will to God and saying, Lord, I've messed up. Will you please forgive me? I accept what you've done at the cross, you've covered all my sin with your blood and I accept what you have provided for me. I invite you into my heart. That's what this season is all about, to just personally make Christmas personal. <laughs> just take advantage of this wonderful opportunity to make Jesus the Lord of your life. You see, he's a resident in Bethlehem, 
so that he might take up residence in our hearts. He wants to rule in our lives. He, he, he doesn't want to be on the outside of our lives, knocking, always wanting to get in. He wants to be on the inside. He resided in Bethlehem so he can reside in our hearts. And more than anything else, this baby that was, has changed everything wants to become the centerpiece of all of our Christmas celebrations this year. And when he is the centerpiece and everything revolves around him, then Christmas will be able to celebrate it with new freshness and with new life and with new joy. I don't know about you, I am so thankful for Bethlehem, but I'm even more thankful for the baby born in Bethlehem because that baby has changed everything. Let's stand together for prayer. Father in heaven, we come to you this morning with thankful hearts. We don't deserve all your goodness. We don't deserve all your favor. You've been so kind. You've given us another opportunity to respond to your grace. And I pray, Lord, for anyone that is here today that has not put their faith and trust in you, that before they settle in this evening and go to bed, that they kneel and say, Lord Jesus, come into my life. Come into my heart. I need you. And I pray, Heavenly Father, that we will celebrate you as to who you truly are. You're the only one that can bring joy. You're the only one that can bring peace. You are the eternal God. You are our shepherd. You are our Lord. You are our master. You rule in the strength of the powerful God. You are the redeemer, the sustainer. From age to age, you never change. You are the same. And today we can rest in you. And we can celebrate Christmas knowing that you are the very centerpiece of it all. Now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God and that sweet communion of the Holy Spirit be with you now and evermore we pray. Amen.